0: Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. From NPR and
1: WBUR Boston, I'm Jane Clayson, and this is On Point. Another week of a country virtually shut down by the coronavirus pandemic, a record-breaking 6.6 million Americans out of work, positive cases and casualties increasing exponentially, and the president says it's going to get worse.
2: This could be a hell of a bad two weeks.
1: This is going to be a very bad two and maybe even three weeks.
2: This is going to be three weeks like we haven't seen before.
1: The governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, says he still does not have what he needs and worries about the depleted national stockpile of critical equipment.
3: Do I think the federal government has enough in the collective stockpiles, enough in their possession to meet the need? I don't know, but I pray that they do.
1: And heroic health care workers on the front lines, overwhelmed and understocked. Here's a nurse speaking to CBS News about the conditions in her Brooklyn hospital.
4: The turnover, someone passes away. All right, get the room clean. Next person in immediately. I mean, there's patients sitting in the ER on ventilators waiting to come up. So there's really just
3: no break.
1: Joining me from Washington is Jonathan Carl. He's the chief White House correspondent for ABC News and author of the new book, Front Row at the Trump Show, out this week, about his experience covering Donald Trump for nearly three decades. John, always great to have you. Thank you.
5: Great to be here, Jane.
1: Also from Washington is Lisa Desjardins, correspondent for the PBS NewsHour. Lisa, thank you for taking the time with us today.
6: So happy to be here.
1: So this week, President Trump said that difficult days are ahead for our nation and that the next couple of weeks will be, quote, horrific. John Carl, you've been covering this president for a long time. Was there a shift in his outlook, a change in his tone about this this week?
5: Uh, His tone has shifted several times over the course of this uh, crisis and not always in the same direction, Uh, but clearly when he was presented with uh, the projections, projections that had been, frankly, out there publicly, but when he was presented directly uh, by the experts on on the task force about just how astronomical and horrifying uh, the toll of this virus, uh, of this pandemic, is likely to be, both in terms of those those infected and uh, those who die from this, uh, there was clearly you know, something that 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 that, that shook him and, and you, you saw him extend the uh the C D C guidelines uh for essentially, you know, a voluntary lockdown of, of, of the country and he was more somber and he was, it seemed to me, struck by this, although you know, even in the midst of that tone changing, we've seen him lash out uh, at political opponents. We saw him uh, write a very uh, you know, political uh, letter to, uh, to Chuck Schumer, uh, and we've seen him uh, lash out at members of the media as well. So, you know, the, the, the tone changes, but it also keeps changing.
1: Uh, Lisa, the, the grim death toll projections that the White House shared earlier this week have already been revised upward. And as John said, the president has extended these social distancing guidelines through the end of April. But this is going to get much worse uh, before it gets better, Lisa.
6: And that's happening very quickly, Jane, already. The president seemed to say that he would, 100,000 deaths would almost be a best case scenario. Um, and giving a wide spectrum up to 240,000 deaths if Americans don't take social distancing seriously. But the truth is the experts don't know exactly. And part of the problem here is that we have some hot spots that are really driving uh, the death and infection rate higher at a faster rate than other places, especially in New York. But right now, we are at, um, it looks like, over 6,000 deaths in this country from this virus, with 1,000 deaths in just 24 hours uh, in basically the last day or so. So the, the rates are picking up uh, very fast. Experts have warned about this, But this is happening right now.
1: Right. So the potential loss of life is is really uh, staggering. And as you mentioned, these latest models that show nearly 100,000 dead at the minimum. And Mm -hmm. these are models that are predicated on every American non-essential worker following the guidelines, John, and staying home for the next 30 days. I want to play this clip. The president made it clear this week he does not support a federal stay-at-home order. And certainly his own scientists say we need to do this. Here's President Trump explaining on Wednesday.
2: I understand that governor of Florida, great governor, Ron DeSantis, uh, issued one today, and uh, that's good, that's great. But there are some states that are different. There are some states that don't have much of a problem. There are some, well, they don't have the problem. They don't have thousands of people that are positive with thousands of people that even... Think they might have it, or
1: hundreds of people
2: in some cases,
1: Jonathan Carl, the guidelines don't say we'll you know we'll keep this to hundred thousand deaths if everyone follows the measures perfectly unless you live in Alabama or Iowa or Missouri or Texas or wherever you know. why no national stay at home order
5: well it's a great question and there isn't a great answer to it uh this the The president has been making that point that you just played uh for a long time he 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 says you know he's talked about uh New York and first he was talking about New York and Seattle is really the, the the places that were of, of concern and then of course we see outbreaks uh in, in Louisiana and uh and, and Michigan and, and, and now uh it looks like Florida is going to be a real hot spot. You know, the you can go back and look at where we were uh, about a month ago and uh raised questions about um, about Louisiana and, and 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 a question you know decision to go forward uh, essentially with with Mardi Gras uh how much did that contribute to where we are now with Louisiana this the, the, the positive test results those numbers are a lagging indicator uh so we don't know we don't know where the thing Goes next. We don't know where the next hot spot is, and this is why uh, many of the health experts, including uh, the top health expert on the president's own coronavirus, uh, pan, you know, a task force uh, Anthony Fauci, has said that this must be a national. That, 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 that this ha- everybody, every state, needs to be uh, essentially uh, abiding by these guidelines. Stay at home, and try to wait for this thing to pass.
1: You mentioned Florida. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has resisted a national or a statewide stay-at-home order, uh, but he reversed course uh, on Wednesday. Here he is
3: even though there's a lot of places in Florida that have very low infection rates, um, it makes sense to, to make this move now. And, um, you know, I did consult with, uh, with folks in the White House. I did speak with the president about it. He, you know, he agreed with, with the approach of focusing on the hot spots. Um, but at the same time, you know, he understood that this is another 30-day situation and, and you, you got to just do what, what makes the most sense.
1: Lisa, you hear it there, uh, the governor of Florida making it very clear he's taking his cues from President Trump.
6: Yes. And he is under a lot of scrutiny. He has been for some weeks. And even with that order that he issued, um, he has allowed some exceptions for uh, houses of worship. And also he has not yet closed public beaches. Those are two controversial things in Florida that many other lawmakers are calling for as soon as possible. Um, I think what we see in the governors and and senators, all of them, Republicans, some have been ahead of the president in their calls, but most have been lagging. So, what? And I can tell you, reporting from the Capitol, when the Senate was still in session last week, many Republican senators pr- privately were set expressing way more concern than publicly. And they told me this was because at that time, The president's message to the people was, we're going to be okay. We can get, this is no big deal, essentially. And Republicans did not want to come out against that in public. Now you see a governor, um, uh, Governor DeSantis of Florida, who has kind of stuck with the president's message, but has lagged behind it. The president is sounding now more serious, more sober about it. And now a few days later, DeSantis is as well. However, he has a state where infection is spreading quickly, and so are wow. deaths. And there is a very vulnerable population, several in that state, but, of course, uh, retirees in that state. And and there are very strong questions about the problems. There are also a problem in Florida with they their unemployment benefit system Um is very difficult to maneuver. It is geared towards discouraging unemployment benefits now at a time when they have more and more people unemployed.
1: You mentioned unemployment. I mean, let's move to that. The pandemic is savaging the U.S. economy with an astonishing 6.6 million Americans filing new jobless claims last week. That brings the total number of people out of work in March to 10 million the Congressional Budget Office said yesterday that it expected unemployment to top 10 percent in the second quarter of 2020. And the impact, Jonathan Carl was initially concentrated in tourism and hospitality. But now we're looking at contractions in the manufacturing sector, even industries usually insulated from recessions like education and health care. I mean, these are incredible numbers.
5: And, uh, and they're not surprising. I mean, you know, initially we were uh, looking, as you said, at, at uh hotels and airlines hospitality industry uh because it was uh the, you know the the guidelines were restricting travel but i mean the, the the country is effectively shut down except you know for those working uh trying to treat the sick the healthcare industry for you know for those working to try to uh, keep the uh supply lines in the grocery store so people can can eat during this this crisis uh so Everything else is shut down. I mean, the, the malls are shut down. The uh, uh, a, 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 across across the board. I mean, we'll take a walk through. Uh, you know, I'm in Washington, and I'm I'm still um, I'm doing as much work as I can from home, but uh, I do have to go to the White House for, for these briefings. I do occasionally have to go to our our bureau, and the the, the streets are empty, and that is the same in, in city after city. It's it's an incredible economic shutdown, unlike any that we have ever seen. I mean, I think back to 9-11, when the country uh, seemed to shut down for a time, but, but for a time. And it was, you know, primarily, you know, the, the airlines were shut down. And, uh, you know, this is everything. This touches every sector. And every American is either unemployed as a result of this, or has a family member or a friend who is unemployed as a result of this. This hits everybody everywhere.
1: Lisa, about 30 seconds before our break, Nancy Pelosi says it could take weeks for some Americans to receive their uh, checks from the $2 trillion stimulus package. How is that possible?
6: Well, it's it's obviously a very quick um, decision by Congress to put out these checks. And it's a large system. Um, I think there's more to say on that front. They're trying to work out systems to make it quicker. Um, And if you get direct deposit, you will get that check more quickly than others.
1: We are talking about the national devastation caused by the coronavirus pandemic this hour. A great panel, Jonathan Carl, White House correspondent for ABC News, and Lisa Desjardins, correspondent covering Congress for PBS News, uh, PBS NewsHour. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. We'll be right back with much more. Stay, to- stay with us.
0: Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash That's Indeed.com slash Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes.
3: ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balanced Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the Balanced Scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the Balanced Scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well... What if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, mid term, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment.
0: Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.
1: This is On Point. I'm Jane Clayson. it's our week in review this hour, and we're looking at all angles of the coronavirus pandemic and the government response. We have a great panel today from Washington, Lisa Desjardins, a correspondent for PBS NewsHour, and Jonathan Carl. He's the chief White House correspondent for ABC News and author of the new book, Front Row of the Trump Show, about his experience covering Donald Trump for nearly three decades. We were talking before the break about the stimulus checks, and we had a great question from a listener in Buffalo, New York. He left us a voicemail with this.
0: So my question is, do individuals that were laid off
3: that file for unemployment get the additional $600 added to their his or her base calculated unemployment rate? And uh, I agree with that to a certain extent. At some point, it seems like
6: if it kept going for weeks and weeks and weeks, it would actually be more conducive to be laid off because you would get paid more sitting home rather than going to work. Yeah, which I don't think is uh, very fair to essential workers,
1: yeah it's a good question uh, Jonathan Carl I'll, I'll uh, bat this up to you. Um, what about this? There's so many questions from people who need the money you know I mean they got to pay the rent they got to put food on the table and we're talking in many cases weeks to get these checks. Here's a question from James what do you what do you say? What do you know?
5: Well, he raises the question of, of the potentially the unemployment benefit during this period where it's been supplemented the additional six hundred dollars. Right. Uh, for some people could it be more than what they were actually uh you know earning on, on the job uh and this was actually a point of debate and some of the Republicans raised this and and said it created a a a, a disincentive for people to work and in a normal circumstance that would be a a, a very legitimate question to raise but in the current circumstance there is no Disincentive because there's no work for many people. I mean, there, there, we have, uh, you know, uh, people. We, we have these numbers, that, these numbers that we didn't even see during the Great Depression in terms of, uh, of 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 unemployment claims of people going in because they just don't have that their jobs have evaporated. Um, so, you know, I, I mm. think that that the decision here among you know the debate in congress kind of quickly went in that direction like we are in an extraordinary time yeah. this is extraordinary measures Um and it's because of 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 the economic situation we're in um the, the normal the normal questions that we would have on something this don't necessarily apply at least for now
1: Lisa Dejar then The Washington Post reported uh, this week that people who get Social security would have to file a simple tax return in order to get their stimulus checks. That story posted and it drew tremendous criticism a few hours later. the Treasury Department reversed its uh, its decision they had to Lisa
6: yeah, this speaks to the fact that we have a very large government bureaucracy that is having a hard time turning quickly um, in this very fast-moving need, that's right. The IRS put out guidance on Monday saying that those on Social Security who don't file taxes, which are many people who depend only on Social Security, they don't make enough to file taxes, um, that they would have to file a special tax form to get this, the rebate recovery check, the $1,200. Um, but, you know, as soon as that came out, those of us who've been covering this bill knew there was a problem because lawmakers specifically wrote language in the bill saying that those on Social Security, people who don't make enough to file taxes, should not have to file a special tax form. So there was a complete disconnect. And, of course, there was a lot of fury. There was a very fast reaction from this population and those who care about people on Social Security saying this is ridiculous. And sure enough, the administration did two days later change that. The IRS sent out guidance, I believe, Wednesday night uh, saying no, Uh, we're we're going to figure out a different way to do this. You don't need to send out to fill in a special tax form if you're in those populations. And and I think speaking to this idea of the unemployment question from James, it's such a good one. Uh, The the trick here is that what what Congress intended to do with this, all of this recovery money is first, they want people to try and stay on the job if possible. That's the money for small businesses, especially to keep people hired. Uh, But then if they can't, then they want there also to be unemployment flowing. It will, in fact, mean uh, a larger paycheck for some people, those who are at the lower end of the income scale, if they're unemployed than if they were working. But just as John said, just the decision makers in Washington said, listen, we have to get this money out and we're not going to stop to sort of work out these levers. We're going to just put out the money, put out as many options for people who are in need as we can.
1: Let me bring another voice into the conversation here. Elizabeth Rosenthal is the editor-in-chief of Kaiser Health News, a nonprofit news organization covering health issues. She's also a contributing opinion writer for The New York Times. In 2002 and 2003, she covered the SARS epidemic at the Times-Beijing Bureau. And uh, she's also a former emergency room doctor. She joins us via Skype from Washington. Elizabeth, thank you for being here today.
4: Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me to talk about this important topic.
1: Well, let me play this clip and we'll talk about it on the other side. Here is Megan Pfeiffer. She's a paramedic in New York City. She shared a video diary with CBS News of her work this week in the nation's epicenter for coronavirus.
3: There's a lot of
0: hospitals that are running low on oxygen tanks and only have the big ones. They're sharing ventilators. Like, We've never seen anything like this before. Right now, it's patient after patient that's really sick, and really, we're taking them in there to die. There's no visitors allowed, so when we take them, that might be the last time that they see them. The people that aren't on ventilators are literally waiting for somebody to die so they can get on a vent.
1: It's dire. Uh, in New York City, Elizabeth, as you know, and a lot of states are looking there, staring down at their future. Uh, still so many governors, Elizabeth, continue to talk about supplies and equipment that, that the paramedic was speaking about there. What is the plan to procure these supplies? And, and why doesn't the federal government take all of this over, distribute so states are not competing e-
4: against each other? I mean, I'm reading about
1: states bidding on eBay, for goodness sakes. What is going on here?
4: Yeah, I think COVID nineteen has provided an incredible stress test for our health system and it's shown all the ways in which our health system is normally weak and fails. Um so I think we you know, the problem is basically that there's shortages of supplies. Hospitals themselves has very have very little incentive to uh keep a, a long term supply of things they never use because we expect hospitals, even not for profit ones, to work like businesses. And the government also doesn't seem to see it as its job to have that stockpile and distribute them rationally and fairly. So COVID-19 has kind of dropped into the middle of that and it's complete chaos. Um, and and I, th- I, I think the politics have conflicted over and over again with the, the medical reality. So for example, uh, we did a story today which I'm uh, you know which is an amazing about the theater of saying oh there's plenty of testing available here's the new Abbott machine it's going to solve everything from uh, our president on the podium and then we, we we learn from others that well actually there are only 5,000 of those out there and that's not going to solve a problem
1: the Defense Production Act let me ask you about that because for weeks yes. the president has resisted fully implementing uh, the DPA and as of yesterday it looks like the federal government will now take take over the supply chain for ventilator parts, at least. I mean, the question is, can they do it fast enough, Elizabeth? Is it too little too late?
4: Well, I think what we're learning is this is all stuff we should have been doing months ahead of time. I mean, if not years ahead of time, at least when we first heard about this happening in China, the notion that well, it's in China and it's not going to come here was, frankly, from a medical point of view, bonkers. Of course it was going to come here. And so uh, we are unprepared. You know, yes, now we're invoking different acts to start making ventilators. But, you know, uh, we hear those aren't going to be ready for 100 days. And frankly, if we're lucky and the social distancing works, uh 100 days, we're going to be out of the worst of this outbreak. So the question is why are we jury rigging uh, ventilators now when we should have seen this coming? And some institutions did, but frankly, um, what we're seeing around the country is this outbreak has been treated on a, you know, every man for himself, every state for himself, every <laughs> hospital for itself. And um, that's not how you can treat a pandemic.
1: Uh, President Trump tweeted yesterday, quote, massive amounts of medical supplies, even hospitals and medical centers are being delivered directly to states by the federal government. Some have insatiable appetites and are never satisfied. The complainers should have been stocked up and ready long before this crisis hit, end quote. Jonathan Karl, bringing you back in here, um, your response to that. And, and I guess the truth of the matter is the federal government div- didn't have supplies either. And Mr. Trump has been president for 38 months. So I guess the federal government is behind a little bit, too, here.
5: You know, it, it's remarkable. On one hand, the president is trying to rally uh Comp- you know, large corporations, big businesses, to uh, t- to help out. You know, manufacture ventilators, manufacture PPE, uh, and-, and-, and to service this need. He's activated FEMA. His team has done. A- you know a lot of the things that, that needed that needed to be done now. I mean, too late, but 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 still, it has, has has activated them to do it now. But throughout all of this, and he's also, by the way, called himself a a wartime president. Uh, in you know, because this is a war, this effort to defeat this pandemic. But throughout it all, he has steadfastly tried to avoid taking responsibility for anything he he literally said uh in a a press conference just a couple of weeks ago uh I am not responsible for anything and it is a uh it is it is odd it's you know it's one thing it's it's good to see uh the task force as you know tried to uh, uh get get things going now but to see him Say what he says about the states and to condemn uh, the states for wanting too many ventilators, wanting too much equipment to help save people is a very odd thing to hear from the president but it it seems to me it's all tied to this question of responsibility it is a It is like the opposite of you know harry truman's the buck stop here it is I am not responsible for anything, and this is why I believe. When I asked him the question a week ago today, will you, can you assure hospitals and governors that everybody who needs a ventilator will be able to get one? He took such offense to the question. You know, don't be a cutie pie. I have the clip. John, let me me. play
2: it.
1: Uh, Here it is. Look, look, don't be a cutie pie. Okay. You know,
2: everyone who needs one, nobody's ever done what we've done. Nobody's done anything like we've been able to do. And everything I took over was a mess. It was a broken country in so many ways, in so many ways. Other than this, we had a bad testing system. We had a bad stockpile system. We had nothing in the stockpile system. So I wouldn't tell me what you're te- what, you know, like uh, being a wise guy.
1: Jonathan Carl.
5: Yeah, so I mean, it, there you have it. He he does not want to take the responsibility, so that if they don't, if the supplies are not there, don't blame me. So you see him at various times in that answer, blaming, uh, by extension, Barack Obama, uh, his predecessor, um, who hasn't been in office obviously for more than three years. Uh, blaming, in another part of the answer, the uh, the, the the governors for not uh, doing more to to create their own stockpiles before this crisis hit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A lot of blame, no no taking of responsibility, and it's 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 actually it's a theme in my book. He he, Donald Trump for all of the bashing of the media he does, what he cares about first and foremost is how he is perceived. In the news media that he that he so vilifies. I'm up against and a
1: break here, Lisa J. Jardan. Jump back in here because it, sure. for what John that said, um, I'm just curious about the supplies and the strategic right. na- national stockpile of these protective gear and and the you know everything that these doctors and nurses and EMTs and first responders don't have. Right? I mean, we're we're barely on mile one of a marathon, and we don't have the supplies that we need now. How can the strategic national stockpile possibly be depleted at this point?
6: Well, it just shows how great the need has been, you know, and and I think there are real concerns about the point people that the president has put in charge to manage this. Uh, uh, Senator Schumer, in a letter or kind of to or said told the president yesterday on a phone and then told reporters last night uh, that he does not have confidence in the people that the president has appointed that he's spoken to them and he does not think they are up to the task that they don't know where equipment is that they're blind in senator schumer's words as to uh, the sort of the production that exists so there are real concerns and to pivot off of jonathan's point i can't resist the buck stops here I want to point out a quote I remember from last January by the president that stuck out to me during the government shutdown. Remember that about, you know, 100 years ago? Um, last year, the president actually said the buck stops with everybody. And, and so that, that sort of speaks to what Jonathan's getting at about how this president sees His responsibility or not, or when there's times of trouble, he wants to look at other people as responsible, everybody. You brought up
1: Senator Schumer. Let me play uh, this clip from uh, this was Thursday on uh, CNN, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer talking about invoking the Defense Production Act, saying it was necessary to keep states and hospitals from engaging in an arms race for supplies.
2: We have an act called the Defense Production Act. It was passed during the Korean War. It allows the president to appoint someone. Who can commandeer the factories and the supply chains to produce what's needed, and then distribute it to the place that's most needed? So we won't have this, uh, you know, th- these this sort of chicken with your head cut off. Everybody running around trying to get the equipment.
1: And so Elizabeth Rosenthal, after that, uh, the president apparently did invoke uh, the DPA uh, on 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 some uh, additional level. Talk about testing. Um, Dr. Burke said it's getting better, but it sounds like even there aren't even enough tests just for states to get an understanding of how widely the virus has spread, let alone for everybody who needs a test to get a test, as President Trump said back on March 6th.
4: Yeah, this has been a really essential failure of this country. When you look at South Korea, which has drive-through and kind of phone booth testing, they know so much more about the outbreak. I mean, now we, I I know literally uh, more than a dozen people in New York who've been told, oh, assume you're positive. Well, that's not a really good answer. I mean, yes, the people on the front line need the test first and people who are hospitalized need the test. Um, But We need to know more about this virus and about this epidemic and who has it and who doesn't, how it spreads. And the only way you do that is to do really, really widespread testing and make it really easy to get tests. And, you know, there are a thousand reasons given for why testing isn't out there. You know, first it was um, it's complicated, but we know scientists at the University of Washington had developed a test in January that worked. But Then there was federal licensing and you know, yada yada yada. Then the CDC came out with test kits, but they were distributed. Equally to all 50 states, even though the outbreak was targeted, uh, you know, then those test kits didn't work very well. And everything is, you know, no swabs, no PPE. But the essential truth is there are not enough tests now. Way, way not enough tests.
1: Well, and, and important more so with the news last night uh, that the virus is spread by speaking, even breathing. Elizabeth Rosenthal, about 20 seconds here.
4: Uh, Yeah, I mean, it, it could be spread by speaking and breathing, which is why people who are suspected to have it or know they have it should wear a mask because that prevents them from giving it to others. But I think the question we're now raising because we don't know is should everyone be wearing a mask? And I don't know if that's rational or not.
1: We are talking about the coronavirus pandemic, what it means for health care, unemployment, politics, and more. A great panel this hour, Elizabeth Rosenthal from Kaiser Health News, Lisa Desjardins from the PBS NewsHour, and Jonathan Karl, chief White House correspondent for ABC News. We've got much more after this break. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. We'll be right back.
6: And who gets to decide?
3: There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators.
6: This is Postmortem, The Stolen Bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is On Point. I'm Jane Clayson. Um, We're talking about the week in the news. But first, we wanted to let you know that on Monday, we're going to be speaking about joy in the midst of overwhelming world events. And we would like to hear from you. How are you finding joy, if at all, as we grapple with the harsh realities of the coronavirus pandemic? Leave us a voicemail, 617 353 that's 617-353-0683. That's six one seven three five three zero six eight three. And we look forward to hearing from you. A great panel this hour. We're back with our week in the news, and what a week it has been. My guests: Jonathan Carl, chief White House correspondent for ABC News; Lisa Desjardins, correspondent for the PBS NewsHour; and Elizabeth Rosenthal, editor in chief of Kaiser Health News. This week, the UN Secretary General called the coronavirus pandemic "quote the greatest test." for humanity since World War II. Also, U.S. intelligence report uh, accuses China of underreporting infections and deaths from COVID-19. And Vice President Mike Pence, the head of the White House uh, Coronavirus Task Force, told CNN on Wednesday that China is to blame for any delay in the White House response to the virus.
3: The the reality is that uh,
6: we could have been better off if China had been more forthcoming. I mean, the, the reality is that China's been more transparent uh, with regard to the coronavirus than certainly they were for, for other infectious diseases over the last 15 years. But uh, what, what appears evident now is that uh, uh, long before the world learned in December that uh, China was dealing with this, and maybe as, mon- as much as a month earlier than that, that it, the outbreak
3: was real in China.
1: Elizabeth Rosenthal, you were the uh, Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times uh, during the SARS epidemic. I'm curious what you make of what the vice president said.
4: Well, certainly those wet markets in China should have been shut down better, where we we think this uh, epidemic originated again, as did SARS um, and I think Tony Fauci suggested that this morning. And there's certainly lots of blame to go around. Yes, of course, there are issues with transparency in China, case reports, what was coming out of Wuhan. So, um, yeah, sure, there's a little bit of blame, wh- reason to point blame in that direction. But we should also blame, uh, point it at ourselves now, because even when we knew what was going on, we didn't react. And so I think what what I learned from SARS is when you're federal government, when the central government doesn't give you accurate information that people feel like they can trust, then people tend to panic. And we saw that during SARS in China. And I'm seeing a lot of that here now because people don't trust their leadership in, in telling the truth. And I think we really need to see a lot more of that.
1: So, Jonathan, Carl, I'm uh, reading here and remembering on Fe- February 10th when President Trump said he thought the virus would go away in April when it got warmer. Uh, I know that there are a lot of people who feel like we did get a little bit of a late start. But what do you make of the president, the vice president there, blaming China for our delay in uh, in the response to the virus? John Carl?
5: Yes, I'm sorry. I'm here. Uh, I-, I think there are two two. Two ways to look at that. One is uh, he's absolutely right. I mean, China was anything but transparent in, in, in the beginning of this, and, and there's clearly a lot of blame to go to China for how China handled this. There's absolutely no question in my mind of that. Uh, but that said, uh, there's no question the United States' response. Uh, was was slow, and I'll give you another one. It was February 27th, I believe, uh, that the president himself, uh, there in the White House briefing room, uh, noted that there were 15 known cases at that point uh, in the United States, and predicted it would soon go down to zero. Um, that is hardly a wartime president marshaling the resources of the country to combat something uh, that 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 would soon consume the entire nation. So uh, even once it was clear that there was a major problem headed our way, uh, you know, it took a while for the administration uh, to to fully grasp the uh, repercussions, particularly the president, undertake those actions. But uh, no matter what criticism you want to aim towards the, uh, the, the Trump White House, there is that does not take away from the, the first point, which is China uh, behaved incredibly irresponsibly on this and tried to, uh, c- you know, block information on this, and to this day as as has uh, thrown out, you know, major news organizations, including the New York Times, uh, from from China and, and blocking our ability to, uh, uh, to to know more about what's happening right now.
1: Mm. Lisa Desjardins, uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi this week formed a new committee to oversee the, uh, the COVID-19 aid. Tell us about that from your perspective uh, covering Congress, and, and what is Congress working on now?
6: Right. So this is a temporary committee. It's called a select committee, uh, which means that the Republican and Democratic leaders will select the precise members who go on it. Uh, it will be chaired by the number three Democrat in the House, Jim Clyburn of South Carolina, now, the problem with this right now, she isn't intends this to be a bipartisan select committee, uh, but the Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, has indicated he's not sure it's necessary because in the CARES Act, which provides uh, the largest amount of aid that the Act that Congress just passed, there are other oversight mechanisms. Um, for one, there's a, a sort of a, a board that members of Congress appoint with f- five people on it as an oversight board. But you know Democrats say this is so much aid. And this is so unprecedented that they, they would like a committee to watch this aid, make sure it's going out in real time as it is as it should. Um, so there is some partisan divide over even the oversight of this. Now, this is separate from another thing Democrats are asking for. A few Democrats, including Intelligence Chairman Adam Schiff, they would like uh, potentially a commission, a 9-11 style commission, to review how we got here, to review the problems with the testing, to review um, the missed opportunities, whatever uh, failed in the U.S. system, the administration's response that led to us being in this crisis as we are now. Mm-hmm. That has not been uh, triggered yet, but it is something that some Democrats are requesting. Mm-hmm.
1: Elizabeth Rosenthal, I wanted to ask you about a very interesting story Um Uh, that you worked on about the flood of medical bills that's coming into those with coronavirus. Give us give us a snapshot.
4: Well, I'm always worried about the costs of uh, uh, the American healthcare system. And I think the problem is, you know, the president has said everyone can get tested for free. But what we're seeing already at kind of the tip of the iceberg is, yeah, maybe that COVID test itself will be free. But where are most people told to go get it, you know, in an emergency room? So we're seeing people with Uh, you know, literally thousands of dollars of bills in order to get COVID testing that um, their insurer is not covering because the insurer will say, oh, you had to go out of network. Well, sometimes you have to go out of network right now to get a COVID test because not everyone is doing it. Or they'll say, well, that emergency room visit wasn't necessary to get COVID testing. Uh, Yes, that's true. Uh, The emergency room charge of $2,000 maybe wasn't necessary. But hey, in my neighborhood in New York City, uh, there's no or very little drive-through testing because New Yorkers don't have cars and hospitals don't have parking lots. So again, there are a thousand ways for people to get stuck. And again, we want we want easy access to testing and we want people to be tested.
1: And and what about the people who have lost their jobs, Jonathan Carl, and their health insurance? Right. The White House was asked this week if they would reopen enrollment in Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. And the answer is apparently no, John.
5: Well, and and the administration continues to fight in court to uh, to 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 nullify Obamacare. (laughs) uh so th- th- this is a huge problem i mean you've got uh you know we have a we have a healthcare system in this country where uh you know so many people get their healthcare coverage through their employers and now you know with uh with 6.6 million people uh, uh filing for unemployment in the, over the course of uh you know the last week this is this is a huge a huge question. How can those people get coverage? And I don't think that this administration has an answer for that right now.
1: Let me um, go to some listener voicemails here. Um, we've been talking about the governor's role in all this, and we got a lot of response from people who are talking about the response in their own state. Here is listener Muriel. She left us a voicemail from Richmond, Kentucky. She is proud of her state's response to the coronavirus pandemic.
6: Our governor, Governor
4: Andy Bashir, I think is just really a leader and really inspiring. And he's on every day at five o'clock. He starts out his um, update with, uh, say after me, we will get through this. We will get through this together. I
1: think the state in general um, just is so inspired. And here is Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir.
3: And let's start the way we always start, uh, by saying that we will get through this. We will get through this together. All right, so everybody, we will get through this We will get through this together. One more time. It helps when we say it. We believe it and we know it. But it still helps when we say it. We will get through this. We will get through this together.
1: Lisa Desjardins, talk about this, sort of these governors that are really stepping up. A lot of high marks for how governors are handling this, for the most part, would you say?
6: Oh, that's absolutely right. I think there was a point, Andrew Cuomo, people were, you know, a lot of Democrats saying, hey, can we rethink him as our nominee right. for president <laughs> because of the strength of, with which he led his briefings? You know, it, this has always been the the kind of back and forth in the U.S. system, one nation but governed through its states. And we're seeing right now both uh, the positives of that, of state leadership being able to help, and sometimes the negatives, this question of should there be a national stay at home order has real constitutional debate over it. It's not clear under the U.S. system if the president can enforce that kind of order, even if he wanted to do it. But I think the point is we're seeing the benefits in each state, uh, depending on the leadership, that so much is put on our governors. And I want to really quickly slip in one addition to what Jonathan said about uh, folks who may be becoming unemployed and need insurance, That there, that there is a provision within the Affordable Care Act that if you have a change in life, for example, if you lose your job, that can open up the option for you to get into the exchanges at that point. So people should look into that. But there are so many people who, of course, their income has become much lower and, and they will not be able to sign up under the way the, administ- the administration's decision not to reopen the Affordable Care Act right now. Mm.
1: Uh, To politics for a moment, the Democratic National Committee this week postponed its presidential convention because of the coronavirus moving it from mid-July to mid-August. We got some response on this. Uh, Here is Jim from Omaha, Nebraska. He left, left us a voicemail saying he's been following the Biden campaign through all this.
3: I received text messages from Joe Biden's campaign almost every day. And I find it interesting that he's asking less for money and more for ideas about what he can do to help his campaign. So I think this uh, represents a change in his strategy during the epidemic.
1: John Carl, I will say, um, I mean, where has the vice president Joe Biden been? We haven't seen much of him, have we?
5: It's such a it's such a strange time. It's such a strange time to be in the midst of a presidential campaign And uh, have campaign events, uh, the traditional campaign events that we have all, you know, we all expect to be the centerpiece of a campaign, uh, completely shut down. So uh, Biden has been out there uh, virtually and and attempting to uh, communicate with his supporters uh, uh, through digital means. But it is it is not the same. And they're not and they're frankly not very good at it. Uh, Maybe they will get better uh but this is not this is this is not their wheelhouse so i you know have a, have this the big question for me is what happens if this pandemic uh, has a resurgence in the fall so even if it even if we see uh, the, the the curve flattened and the, the worst pass over the next month, and and beginning to see life relatively get back to normal over the summer, and by the way, there's no guarantee of that. But even if that plays out, um, it, it's quite possible that we see it come back with a vengeance in the fall. If you look at the at the curve for the Spanish uh, flu in, in 1918, 1919, uh, the the point of the most Deaths was actually in late October, mm. um, and that raises a question to me: What do we do if we're in a situation where this has come back, uh, potentially even worse than it is now, uh, in the midst of, of, of the fall campaign? Right now, you know, we're at the tail end of the primaries. Uh, Biden is, you know, all but the presumed nominee. Uh, you know, th- th- this is a relative, potentially a relative lull in the campaign. But if we're in a fall campaign, what do we do to ensure that people can vote in all 50 states? Yeah. And there's, there've been, there's a movement out there to make sure that all 50 states have vote by mail. Right now they do not. Uh, in some states that would require a change uh, in, in state constitutions. Um, but this is something that needs to be thought of right now, uh, because you, the one thing that cannot happen is you cannot see a general election uh, postponed. I mean, that has to happen. Um, Otherwise, we have a whole nother level of political crisis in this country.
1: Let me do a quick round robin. We have about a minute left here. Let me ask each of you what you're looking at uh, in the week ahead. What's on your radar? What are you what are you tracking? Elizabeth Rosenthal, you first.
4: Uh, I think we want to see what happens with the New York outbreak, uh, see what happens as it moves to other parts of the country, because we know in a pandemic that this it is a chain reaction. And the chain is only as strong as its weakest link. I also am looking at the mask debate, which is uh, heating up should people wear masks and under what situations. And again, testing, testing, testing. I want to see that be the reality, not just the uh, political myth. John Carl, quickly.
5: Man, can I take all three of those? That's exactly (laughs) what I'm looking at. And I'm particularly looking at Florida. Maybe it's because my mom uh, lives in Florida and, uh, you know, I'm – keeping obviously in constant touch with her and, and, and worried about her. She's fine right now. Um, and I'm trying to keep her <laughs> staying at home. Uh, but the, uh, you know, this whole idea of masks, where the heck are you going to get all those masks uh, if, if, if the CDC goes forward with these guidelines? Yeah. How, how are people <clears throat> going to get masks when right now there's a challenge just getting healthcare care workers uh, the masks? And, 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 and,
1: and let me end with Lisa Desjardins. I got about 30 seconds, Lisa.
6: Yep, I can keep it tight. Um, I think I'm looking at how the loans are going to go out to small businesses. That process begins today. That is a lifeline to much of American employment and how unemployment checks, um, how those work in different states.
1: Thank you all so much uh, for giving us such great information in a very difficult time. Um, Elizabeth Rosenthal, editor-in-chief of Kaiser Health News. Thanks, Elizabeth. Appreciate it. Thank you. Jonathan Carl, Chief White House Correspondent for ABC News, author of the new book Front Row at the Trump Show. Thanks for being here, John. Great. Thank you. And Lisa Desjardins, PBS NewsHour Correspondent. Lisa, thank you. Great panel. Thank you. Thank you. We go out this hour with Mariah Carey singing Always My Baby from her home in New York City. This was for the iHeartRadio Living Room Concert this week, the concert for America. Try to have as good a weekend as you can, folks. Thanks for being with us. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point.
6: We love you. Stay safe. I'm going to put my gloves on, even in my own home.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken? A podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes.
3: ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the balance scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balance scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, Right, that was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balance scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, mid term, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment.
0: Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.